We created something brand new by essentially applying a fintech application to a centuries-old industry by creating a decentralized water. Water is a service, funding it like an MLP. These are things that all people know, but it's never been done this way. We've now become an industry, we've kind of become an industry standard. That national account, along with another household name, massive company, right? Billion, you know, trillion dollar company. They bypassed the bidding process and went right to our design because it was like, no, we need that. Other companies, you know, they look to these industry leaders and they go, wait a minute, what are they doing? Why are they, oh, why are they doing it? So what happens is we become the Q-tip. In other words, you become the brand. Q-tip was the name of the brand. It wasn't cotton swab. So it becomes the brand. And there's literally, you know, it runs in the billions and billions and billions of dollars. So not only are we going to be innovating and in, in providing a water for us decentralized water model, but we can have an amazing impact on this gargantuan existing water infrastructure business that we constantly say is, you know, archaic and we can modernize it. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the CEO briefing. And We'll get right into it. Greetings, Robert Baxter. Hello. All right. We got a nice group tonight. Let's keep on trucking. All right. What is a new goal? And we are November 3rd. Oh, Thanksgiving coming. Briefing number 185. Water like an oil well is the emerging income asset. All right. Usual disclaimers. And let's get right into it with mega droughts. These things are in the news. And let's see what's going on here. Zero hedge, uh, record high. 75% of U.S. winter wheat suffers from drought. So uh, third consecutive winter of La Nina. Now, La Nina is very important to me because I'm a skier. <laughs> so it means that the snow is in the north, not in places so much like California. We do manage, but it's a challenge. Anyway, but more seriously is that we have a bad growing season this winter. This is the drought monitor, and you can see there's some serious drought going on. Winter wheat, nearly 75% of the crop areas are in a drought, and that's not a pretty picture. So um, I guess you could look down there at Micronesia. They've got some droughts. But more importantly, California, Utah, the uh, central uh, Midwest area, they're all in drought. Here's a percentage of winter wheat areas suffering from drought, up to 74% there. Um, been there before, but anyway, it's not doing great. And they're worried about literally not being able to harvest enough. There's less than half of this particular guy. So um, that's not a good picture. These are the grain production areas experiencing drought. Uh, spring wheat, 75%, 74%, 71%, 70%. So that, again, is a problem. And we have here the problem with uh, spreading the fertilizers. Tucson, Arizona has done a great job of uh, speaking of solutions because they started having a mega, a mega drought. And what they did is they, <laughs> they started harvesting rain. Now, it turns out that enough rain falls on Tucson to supply everyone with water if you just collect it. But uh, it's been, you know, what you might call old water. Old water has always been like, well, this is how we do it, you know. And so, the purpose of the streets was to channel the water down to the drains, not going over into people's properties and so forth. 12 inches of rain an average year. So, you know, this is not like they are really in a mega drought per se, but here's the problem. 
is here's a picture, pretty picture of Tucson. Here's the problem. They get uh, most of their water from the Central Arizona Project, which uh, the water comes from the Colorado River. And uh, it's not like Tucson is in more of a drought than it was. It's that there's been uh, basically overpumping and a drought uh, for the Colorado River that means that there's a shortage. And that's the problem. So climate change is expected to cause snowpack at the headwaters to decline and brings hotter temperatures that further decrease stream flow. They've put in a number of things like uh, desert landscaping, tiered water supply system, uh, pricing system, and so on. And it talks about Brad Lancaster, who's a pretty cool guy. Let's see if we can pull that up. Here we go. Well, so what Brad Lancaster did is started breaking the law by basically channeling water into off the streets into properties. And he learned this from having uh, gone to South Africa and met with a farmer, Stefania Firimaseko, who had turned his family's plot into a beautiful one. But here's the thing. The government had outlawed what he called curb cuts. Curb cuts is when you cut the curb to let the water escape into gardens, into sidewalk gardens. And uh, sure enough, the city officials didn't like it, but eventually it happened. So this is a really great article. It's worth reading. It's from bbc.com. And they've done a great job. So what have we learned from this? Well, we've learned that there is a solution. We, of course, work very much on potential recycling, because once you treat your own water, then you can recycle your own water. In this case, it's all about whether or not you can recapture water that's falling already. These two areas are very, very important. And you know, uh, if we did a lot of this, it would add up and we wouldn't have these big problems, the over pumping problems. And you know, if you have a, if you have a drought, you have a drought, but at least you'd be able to survive it. All right. So that's a pretty cool story. Now, what does fracking have to do with all this? And I thought I would go back, you know, on the time machine and take us to a discussion that I had with the late T. Wynn Pickens, 2014, at the American Renewable Energy Day in Aspen, Colorado. And so let's take a look at this. And uh, I gave some uh, surprising information to Mr. Pickens. Here we go. We're just going to invite a couple more guys to join us up here. We're going to expand the conversation into uh, water and uh, some best practices. Uh, so if... Uh, Bill, if you would introduce. So we're going to be joined by Riggs Eckleberry of Origin Oil, Inc., and David Trickett of the Jefferson Circle. Um, please come up and join the conversation to expand it. Um, Riggs, uh, Riggs Eckleberry has a, a company called Origin Oil, and they've come up with a very unique uh, technology that basically takes the 5 million gallons per well that we drill. And I'm going to say that we have about 100,000 wells in the state of Colorado. I'm probably off a little bit, but, but pretty close. And a lot of them have been drilled in the last eight or 10 years. Some of them right over here in Rifle, Colorado, near where we live. And uh, we use about 5 million gallons, I believe, correct That's me right. if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. per, per well. And then uh, apparently uh, that, that water comes back out and it's full of heavy metals and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it gets carted off at about $8 a barrel. Is that right? It varies by region, but it's expensive. Okay. So your technology basically uh, takes that water, removes uh, those uh, metals, et cetera, and then they reuse it. Is that right? Right. So there's, a, of course, a range of options. Sometimes in Colorado, it's got to be returned to fully potable. 
uh, or it can be cleaned up to the level that it can be reused in the, the next frac job, for example. Um, and so theoretically, especially if you're getting water coming out of the formation, you can actually make that well independent of outside water supplies because, uh, as you know, there's, there's often plentiful water that comes out of the aquifers as well. Right. Now, I have a, um, a presentation I thought I would make to When you say out of the aquifer. <clears throat> out of formation. Out of formation. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, on that issue of, of, of 5 million gallons per well in a water-constrained west, where drought is upon us in California, et cetera, it seems like a pretty good idea to try to conserve as much water as we can. When you were talking about conserving water, you know, Karstner just said, Andy did, was talking about how much of our energy that we lose. And it, when you look around, pardon me for interrupting sure. you, but, but I mean, it, it's a good idea to conserve everything, uh, all resources. I mean, that, that shouldn't be axiomatic. Well, the reason I bring it up, and I think that uh, David can speak to this, is there's, I think, uh, a lot of friction between the parties around this fracking issue. Uh, and people tend to dig in on their various positions and so forth. And it's our position that if the oil industry can uh, address this proactively, there's going to actually be perhaps a lowering of the temperature and the ability to, to work together. As you may know, the Hoover Dam has been dropping down. This is just in one year. Now, here's what it looks like. Um, that's uh, in June 16, 2013, and this is just one year later. Are you fracking out of that? Oh, no. This is just to show where the Colorado watershed's going. Okay. So the thank God we're not fracking out of Lake Mead. But um, <laughs> so what we have here is a 13-month drop, and of course, it's from a low level already. So there's clearly uh, troubles with the Colorado watershed, and uh, the Ogallala, as you know, Boone, is... is um, is threatened as well because there's a big drought of 2012 and, and it has not been alleviated. We have parts of the Ogallala that are going to getting quite low and it, uh, it is not recharging fast enough. So groundwater is an issue uh, in the West but also in the Midwest. Now here's the interesting slide uh, by Ceres where they show that so many of our fracking operations are in stressed environments. A stressed environment is one that already has 80% of the water being used for other uses, uh, so it makes for competition. So fracking is competing in these various areas um, with other users, and many of these areas, like the gray ones, are arid to start with. We also know that overall fracking use is low. As a percentile, here's Colorado. Uh, and it shows that hydraulic fracturing is 0.08% uh, of total use, um, agriculture being the biggest at 85%. Uh, percent. Now, the issue... Does that take in metropolitan? It's Colorado overall, yes, sir. Here's the issue, and we see this in Texas. Local stress can be very high. We have Carnes, for example, 213% uh, proportion of fracturing, fracturing used to domestic. We have in... Uh, Erion uh, County, small population, of course, but they're at almost 3,000%. So this can create local stresses. And why is this important? Well, there's people live there, and they get concerned. Um, Texas is, is, is pro-fracking, of course, but I think we have to be mindful of the stresses on the population. And here's another one, where populations <laughs> are growing in the arid regions, all these circled areas, are major growth areas for population in the very same areas. And what you am I? know why they're growing. 
Well, they're growing because it's a great climate for starters. It's growing because of oil and gas and in those too. areas are so active and employing so many people. Right, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, you've been to Midland, Texas lately. You wouldn't believe it if you hadn't been there in 10 years. Well, we have an office in Houston, and I agree that Texas is doing very well. But, for example, California, which has not yet had a fracking boom, is growing. The point is, fracking is, is a boom, uh, but so is, you know, the weather in Florida, the weather in California. These people are migrating to nice yeah, places. That's right. Okay, now, this is the point. If you have a growing population and stressed aquifers, fracking operators are under what I call a perfect storm, right? It's a PR situation that they have to recognize. And, and our experience at Origin Oil has been that um, operators would just rather it just go away. So it's not going to. I think we need to be proactive. All right, so the good news is recycling uh, with a whole new generation of technologies like ours is becoming chemical free and, and much more efficient. Uh, we can save on truck trips. There's excess water that can be piped to farmers. It's happening in the Imperial Valley right now where Chevron is piping water into uh, that's not regulated Colorado water. And finally, there's more and more waterless fracking which can do about a third of the job. And there's savings available. This is a spreadsheet which you can get from our company, which, um, depending on the scenario, you can save a lot of money on your water if you recycle. That's a win-win. Conclusion is, of course, is that we can dramatically mitigate the perceived impact of fracking on stressed water supplies with these proactive measures, and that's my point. Okay, what's the name of your company? That we Origin buy Oil. Okay, what's the symbol? O-O-I-L. Thank what's you. It, what's it selling for? Oh, we're a micro, we're a micro cap. We're a micro cap, and we're a technology company. So we're freely licensing our technology to all comers. We're, we're kind of like Android versus iOS. You know, you don't have to buy the platform. You can have the technology and pay for it on the back end. Well, that that was a very very interesting presentation. This is back when we were called Origin Oil, and as you know, we. Uh, we shifted to Origin Clear and changed our ticker to OCLN because here's a couple of things that we learned. First of all, as I mentioned it there, the oil industry would rather the problem just go away. And that's what we ran into. We ran into a lot of oil operators who were just trying to buy time and just kind of push it off. Also, at the same time, this is when the price of oil really crashed and which forced us out of our original game of algae. If those of you who have been around for a long time know that we started as an algae company, uh, making biofuels out of algae. And uh, then we moved into this uh, this uh, technology for, for cleaning up frack water and found that the oil industry was just not, we're, we're just, we're just going to like not invest. Unfortunately, that continues to be the problem in energy because of the fact that uh, it's a, a policy of the U.S. administration to encourage renewables and discourage fossil fuels. So it's not easy to sell in that space. And ultimately, we made a decision to broaden our horizons and move into general water treatment. But check out that stat that we that we, we generated from our models. You can save up to 80% of your water costs through recycling. That stat remains true. And that is exactly what we're doing today with decentralized water for everybody. Breweries, apartment complexes, factories, etc. So that 
car dealership up uh, near where uh, Ken lives in Pennsylvania um, was able to locate off the grid by having one of our what we call black water recycling systems. So we've continued and, and we've executed. One thing that we learned is that the water industry is also very um, anti-new technology, and that was hard. What we found was a technology, Dan Early's modular water, that was very acceptable. Why? It was simply a new way to package the water treatment system. And as a result, we tend to be basis of design for uh, about 80% of the projects that Dan does. He's basis of design. What does that mean? No one else can have the bid because it requires the patented modular water system technology and the product itself. And that's really, I think, a stronger uh, position to take than the one we were trying back then. But here's what's interesting. Fracking, in actual fact, was only 0.8% of total water usage in Colorado. What was the biggest? Agriculture at 83%. And we keep running into this again and again and again, where agriculture really is the biggest user. Now, I'm all for rice paddies in places that have lots of rain. But rice paddies in a desert environment like California, I don't think so. And so that's really a problem. Unfortunately, it's not one that's going to be solved soon. And so agriculture just has to get much, much more efficient. So does industry start recycling, doing its taking care of its taking out its own wash, shall we say? Okay, so that was my my little homily, as you might say. And Keith Rutten, you were way ahead of your time. That is indeed true. All right, so we're we're now going to talk about an interesting topic here, which is how is big water doing? with investments, investing in big water. And a shareholder forwarded me this. It was very, very interesting. This is uh, BlackRock is um, investing uh, best. The rich world is likely to face a water crisis. Yeah, well, there's water crisis everywhere. And uh, remember in that video, I showed a picture of the water levels in, in uh, Lake Mead. Well, that was much higher than it is today. I mean, it was only that first bath, bathtub ring, of course, has come down ever since. And it just keeps on going, right? Um, but what BlackRock has done is they've created an exchange-traded fund called iShares Global Water ETF, a ticker DH20 at LN. And I went ahead and looked it up. Now, here's what's interesting. Since 2021, it's gone up, 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 and it's gone down, down, down. There was no reason. The, the market wasn't crashing in... Um, in early 2022. And so these are five, the holdings are American Waterworks, which is the largest, largest water company in America, uh, Xylem, et cetera. And so these are companies that are working very closely with central water systems. And it's obviously not a growth area, right? So the, um, uh, the performance of this so far this year is uh, down about 20 some percent. And, uh, and that was, you know, obviously before things started crashing most recently. So what I'm saying is that we have, you can't just say water, water's great because there's increasingly a division between big central water, which is increasingly underfunded and the big water companies are fighting over a dwindling pool of, of city, state and federal funds and decentralized water, which is funded by investors. Uh, in our case, you know, regular investors and then other um, competitors of ours are funded by venture capitalists or um, in the case of one very large one, 
the um, Morgan Stanley infrastructure partners. So that is private sector uh, funding of the solution. And we think it's essential that we move into that in order to, so these central systems can continue to operate, but they're supported by a lot more. It's kind of like, you know, bring in the reserves, the army reserves to, so that we don't lose the battle. So shall we say, okay, so that's an interesting story. Now, here's another aspect. Uh, I, I was interviewed for a podcast. And the reason why Jay LaGuardia was interested in this was because um, he liked the health aspect. Dr. Jay LaGuardia is really about health and fitness and success, you know, the combination of the two. And uh, he was intrigued by what we were talking about. And so Here's some excerpts from the interview. Hey, welcome back, Triple P Nation. As I mentioned this week, my guest is Riggs Eckleberry, who is the founder and CEO of Water Technology Company. Um, and when I got the promotional email from his media team about Riggs and his company and what they do, I immediately found myself uh, very interested because, you know, we talk often about the importance of lifestyle and the healthy life choices. And hydration is one of the simple things that, uh, that uh, we can focus on as far as a positive daily habit to enhance our overall wellness. But there's more than just drinking water, right? It's, it's the quality of the hydration. And I think Riggs is gonna give us some real great insight to what our water system, is, where it's at um, as a nation and where, we, where we're falling short. and maybe other solutions, how we can up-level our hydration and do it in a proper and a healthy way. So Riggs, welcome to the show. It's my great pleasure, Jay. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us, first of all, uh, about the company, about you in particular, and, and how you got started um, with this company specifically. You know, What was your motivation and mission with starting uh, your company? You know, 80% of all the sewage in the world is just thrown away. It's not treated. Now, it's not, it's not that bad here in the United States, but it's really bad in developing countries. So kind of balancing it out, we have only about 20% of that um, filthy water is reused. And you have some very, very bad streams out there, including I just saw another river uh, designated as a uh, toxic uh, Superfund site in New Jersey. You know, the Lower Hackensack River just became another um, Superfund site. So we have our problems now. That affects health, but it also uh, means that we're throwing away the water. We use the water, we throw it away. We have this disposable um, culture, but water is becoming scarce. We have problems throughout America, not just in the West. The Ogallala Aquifer down the middle is also down about 150 feet and it takes a long time to recharge. So, so we're not really husbanding our resources. So when we moved into the water industry, we tried to figure out, okay, now what, how can we really change things? And we eventually realized that um, there's a long-term underfunding of water districts all over the country. And right now it runs about $75 billion negative each year. Imagine losing $75 billion each year. That's what's going on. And so you get these um, things that happen. You know, Jackson, Mississippi recently, you know, they just got overwhelmed by a storm runoff and all of a sudden the water ran brown. 
Well, that was because of neglect of infrastructure needs. And the problem really is that uh, where, you know, in Clearwater, well, you know, Clearwater Beach, right? Mm-hmm. Clearwater, where are you going to put a, a massive treatment plant? It's fully built out. And so the central solution to the problem is kind of falling apart. Now, 89% of all water demand is by industry and agriculture. In this country, it's about even. And the water districts would be doing a wonderful job giving us residential users wonderful water if the business people weren't completely overloading it. So we made it our mission to help decentralize water treatment, help businesses do their own treatment, get off the grid. And that actually is a very good deal for them because they control their costs, they can recycle, they can get more use out of the water. Um, And the water districts love it because they're overloaded. And so it's a really win-win for everybody where increasingly, let's say you're a, a brewery, you're expanding, local water district won't take your water anymore. Fine, put in a system of your own. And that's becoming a really kind of a revolution where more and more of this water, um, making water clean is happening at the place where it's made dirty, which makes sense, right? Sure. Like you're making it dirty, we'll clean it before you pass it on. So that's really uh, what's happening now. Of course, we took it the next step, which is, well, how about if these people didn't have to pay money up front? And so we created this uh, water as a service so that uh, if you're that brewery, you adopt a, a machine in your own location, you can pay for it just the same way you were paying the city. You're just paying us. So we're really privatizing water treatment. And that is very, very popular. Uh, and investors are super excited because for the first time, they can invest in water assets and make money. And it's a new asset class. It's a very, very interesting thing. Now, that doesn't you know, really address directly the purity of the water that your listeners are into. And we can talk about that too. So it's interesting. You said privatizing, you know, the, um, uh, the water treatment for businesses and so on and so forth. What's the quality of that water um, compared to the current uh, quality that municipalities are putting out? I mean, you read so much that the, that the current water quality, I know it's different by district or by community or mis- municipality, but, you know, they're laden with, you know, heavy metals or uh, drugs. I mean, it, I saw a report in our local paper about a couple of years ago, there were 64 trace um, elements of, of uh, uh, pharmaceuticals in the water. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, it's crazy. Hormones. So, exactly. Hor- exactly. And of course, that's having a tremendous impact on our overall health and well-being. And I'm sure it's similar in other municipality as well too. So it's awesome, A, that they can privatize it and clean up their own water. Um, So the first part of the question is the quality of the water that they're able to filter and treat themselves, is it better or the same? And then the second part of that question, Riggs, is what about to the end user, the consumer? Because as your math, it's only 11% of the water that's consumed. Yes, and it's interesting because in California they're they're you know really piling on to the residential users like you got to save water, you can't take long showers and so forth. But they have a pretty small effect overall. The big effect is 
the especially agriculture in California, the twenty billion dollar market, and they have their lobbyists, <laughs> of course. So, um, you know, it'd be great if they all were, you know, were required to, to uh, I don't know, grow barley or or uh, kale. But no, the real money is in avocados and almonds, so uh, and rice, things like that. So uh, the the fact is is that if we unburdened the central central system, then then the water districts could really spend a lot of, you know, they have the ability to handle eleven percent of the total load. They get that, right. They they can do that really well. Now, when a business starts doing its own treatment, it generally just gives the water back to the city. Okay. Gets, so it's not trying to get to a high degree of potability, and and the city gets treated water great. They run it through a polishing step, and out it goes. So that generally. There's three phases to water treatment. The first phase, of course, is treating the incoming water so it's clean. And we can talk about that. Second is treating the dirty water so it's at least treated to a certain level. And the third is potentially using recycling it for, you know, sprinkling the golf course or whatever the requirement is. So, you know, incoming, the wastewater, and then the um, irrigation uses or or various uh, industrial uses for the water. Generally, people don't try to take it all the way up to potable on site because they don't need to. They can just return it to the city. Now, let's let's address the problem that the cities have or that we have with city water, which is that the standards have not been updated for a very long time. If you go to the environmentalworkinggroup.org, ewg.org slash tapwater, and you'll get a chance to put in your zip code, find out what's the water in your zip code. And almost uniformly, they say, oh, it's fully compliant with the law, but <laughs> it's 600% too much arsenic, you know, 300% too much uranium. By, by ordinary current scientific standards, EWG is a very good organization. And they're just quoting like, hey, by the way, your city water is fully compliant. They're not breaking the law, but the law is way out of date. And so water's coming into our homes that has got things, for example, forever chemicals, right? Which are these chemicals that get into the system and they just never get out. Uh, for example, the stuff that makes um, Teflon pans, right? That's a, that's mm-hmm. a forever chemical. Or, um, or that uh, Roundup stuff, what's called glyphosate. Um, and so... And here we get into a problem of, you know, class society, because I've invested in a, in a water system for my home, but who's got the cash, right? And so a lot of people in America are living from tap water and they don't have much choice about it. Um, at the very least, I would say, you know, put in a, a an under sink system and, you know, it'll be, you know, eight, nine hundred dollars. That is well worth it. We do this. We we don't work at the residential level. We work at the industrial level. We just installed a a, a purification system for a major hotel. Second one's coming along. We do the industrial ones. And I'll tell you, this is what's something very interesting. This first hotel contract was actually designed a couple of years ago before it finally got into use, and it did not have the forever chemical module. The second hotel we're doing, all of a sudden, it does. What I did in in uh, my house, and which I think makes sense. First of all, you you want to invest in an under sink water treatment system, 
that's essential. Um, and that would be something which purifies uh, everything, the forever chemicals, all of it. So generally it's reverse osmosis with carbon filters as well. And also remineralizing um, system to make it healthy again. And as some people also like to invest in a module that brings the pH back up, that's, that's really optional. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what we did in our house. Um, and then we, for the showers and stuff, we just did a 0.2 micron general uh, cleaning up system. And then um, have special filters in the shower heads to remove the glyphosate. Well, who does that? Right. I mean, yeah. um, you and I do it and, you know, we're health conscious, but we also have the budget for it. Um, and so we have a, a problem, which is that regular people are drinking the tap water and we don't have much choice about it. Uh, so the environmental working group has, des- had, you know, points out all these various toxins in the water um, that are not, a. well, here's the funny thing. It'd be nice to update the, the the water standards in the law, but again, the water districts don't have the funds to do it, and so you we're basically running suboptimal, and that's just the way it is. You know, recently there was a huge infrastructure bill that was just passed by the Biden administration, uh, where resources set aside to help um, update and and kind of remodel. Um, the the water systems um, around the country. Do you know if that was a part of it? Yes, but it was um, a grand total of fifty five billion dollars, which sounds like a lot of money. Except that we are, you know, getting worse by seventy five billion each year. Right. So it's less than one year's catch up. So even though it's one point two trillion dollars, for some reason Washington doesn't see water as a priority. It's a strange situation. It is what it is, um, you know, bandwidth for underserved places like where you live. Sure, they, are, they have high priority on that. But, um, you know, the, the most vital thing around, which is the water, it doesn't get the attention. And I maybe it's not sexy. I don't know. But I consider it important. Well, I mean, you literally can't survive without proper hydration. I mean, it's, it's all right. Maybe not up there with air. <laughs> if the air's gone, we're in trouble. But uh, in a short period of time, without proper hydration, at seventy-two hours, you know, you, you're going to have some serious system defects. You said something early, really piqued my interest. Um, as a entrepreneur, as a business person, you said that water is becoming the next asset class. So mm. that my my ears went up when you said that. And it makes total sense, right? Anything that's a finite resource that's required for a hundred percent use of everybody, you know, that there's got to be really good marketplace in there. So, ex- <clears throat> excuse me, explain that a bit, and particularly why is it that, you know, um, you know, major investors are now looking at this as as a play for them. Ah, that's very interesting because what we're dealing with right now in the current uh, American and world economy is a lot of assets that are just doing strange things. Why? Because of politics. For example, energy, I can't, I can't tell if energy is going up or down sideways because various decisions are being made um, at, at, at a geopolitical level that are way beyond my pay grade. 
Um, similarly, real estate is a strange um, thing where it seems, you know, like uh, there's, rent, you know, people are renting more and more, fewer people are buying the, the interest rates. So I'm not going to go through the catalog, but there's a, a whole bunch of assets in your portfolio that are kind of not doing that great. And um, bless you if they're doing great, but a lot of people are stuck with a 401k that doesn't look very good. Water is coming out of a government monopoly. And so it doesn't have that history. It's not, it doesn't have a geopolitical, nobody's been like, we're going to make sure that the water, you know, no, none of that's going on yet. Um, it's pretty much considered a um, politics-free zone. So we've been able to build a, a um, something called water on demand, which is a way that businesses can commission a water system and not pay for it up front. They simply sign a service contract and they pay by the gallon. And so it's a water as a service. And our investors are um, able to, you know, we, we, we create a, a bucket of, um, of properties and then our investors get Residuals from that, just like you know, oil wells or solar properties, very similar. Um, but here's the kicker: because it's very early, these investors are coming in at the outset, and it's extremely—they're being treated extremely well. And we like sure. to say that we're going to make your portfolio okay for a while, <laughs> because you're going to do so well with this new asset. We believe, anyway that right. it's going to overcome a lot of the bad stuff and your your spouse is going to like you more. That's what we say. So then is that um, a potential uh, investment play for small investors or only large players in the future? Well, you know, what is, we're not the only player in water as a service. It's a growing business and um, there there's a lot of um, players that are, are, are operating in the space the only people that are welcoming regular investors is Origin Clear. Okay. We've chosen to make it just like oil well master limited partnerships anybody can invest in. We're making it the same way. And so you can invest in um, this water on demand into through Origin Clear. And we are um, rolling out these programs. Um, it's very early. And as a result, as I was saying, it's, it's, it's very, very generous. It does require that you be accredited, which means you make 200000 a year individually or 300000 with your cohabitant, or you have a million dollars in net worth outside of your primary home. But the good news is, because I hate that with a passion, <laughs> I, I'm so against it. It's so elitist. I mean, God. Um, yeah. Fortunately, uh, in the fourth quarter, we expect to have and a, an offering for unaccredited investors. So you can take whatever amount you want, thousand, five thousand, whatever you feel you can you can you can handle and invest it in the stock of this company. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So people can invest in the asset or they can invest in the stock, but whatever, I think that this is this is this is water's time. You know, it's funny because I know I was I love the dot com going through all the really fast moving stuff. And I, and I love the speed of high tech <clears throat> and these old, but then in the two thousands, it became, okay, wh what about the taxi industry? What about the hotel industry? All these old school businesses got revolutionized 
And it's time for it to happen to water, which is, by the way, a trillion dollar market. This is a serious problem. You know, it, you know, maybe water is, like you said, isn't as sexy as, as petroleum and oil and, and, and so on and so forth, you know, from an economic standpoint, but it, perhaps it's, it's just as important, if not, even not more so. So specifically, the work you do, is it primary with larger corporations or is there a use in smaller businesses as well too? As a water company, we have an existing business that's old school and that does work with very large companies. For example, we do uh, large um, electrical utilities. We have big projects with them, but that's on the, you know, they pay us, we do the work kind of thing. That's the old school sure. business. Mm-hmm. The new business that we're building with this decentralizing down to the level of the local brewery, car dealership, whatever, is much smaller. Part of the problem has been all these, you know, until recently, is getting systems that would that would miniaturize down to that level. So, that, mm-hmm. you know, you could have something go into a brewery and fit into the back corner. It wouldn't be a gigantic thing, right? We have that. We've developed um, our division, Modular Water Systems, which has patents on these water systems in a box. And that works very well. So it's been a technological issue, which, you know, is being solved by us and others. It's also been a financial issue because many, many companies, uh, and now, of course, we're seeing money becoming much um, harder. The interest rates are rising and it's harder to get the loans, both. Of course. Right. Yeah. So, so increasingly they're like, okay, I need to do something, but I don't have the capital. We go, that's fine. Those tend to be smaller. Um, you know, $500,000 to $2 million type systems mm-hmm. versus, um, you know, a, a electrical utility might need, you know, 5 million plus, you know, worth of work. Um, so that it kind of spans the range. I believe the revolution is going to be in the small to medium businesses that are going to be equipped over the next few years with compact on-site systems that are fully managed, uh, you know, electronically and uh, in real time. And uh, that's, that's going to be the bulk of the users out there. In our area, we have a ton of microbreweries here. So what would typically be the ROI and making an investment and in putting this into something like a brewery where they can expect a return on that over X amount of years or so on and so forth? Hey, you have any kind of figures on that? The base deal is that there's an annuity of, of uh, percentage of net profits, which is 25% of net profits. So that we've got... Um, long-term forecasts of that. But what we've done is we've really sweetened the pot with um, equity. So investors get a piece of mm-hmm. the public company and also of the new uh, Water on Demand Inc. startup. And um, that really creates a very, uh, very strong return on investment. Okay. Very good. Last question I have for you today is, again, in in the... Um, um, some of the content in which you shared with me, you you made a statement about inflation. I'm not an, eco- an economist, but I think inflation is here to stay. All I got to say is you you need to be in something solid. You know, I think we're going to see a lot of um, loss of value in assets. And um, for example, let me give an example. Energy is getting really good prices right now, but at the same time, we have political pressure to not invest in energy. Correct. So it's being talked down. So what investor in his right mind is going to make a lot a 20 or 25 year investment in an energy um, like a oil well? It, they're not doing it. 
So it's this odd situation of, wow, lots of demand, prices rising, and yet it's not a safe investment for the long term. That's a crazy situation, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, just by the very nature of of how the Fed is being aggressive and raising rates, it's it's to uh, tamp down demand. So this way, people spend less money. There's less liquidity in the market. Prices, hopefully, in their mind, then will start to stabilize, and 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 inflation will start to normalize, whatever that looks like. I mean, the historic rates is you know two and a half to three percent per year, but I'm not sure we're going to see that again for a really, really long time. You can only print so much money and devalue the currency so long at zero interest rates. And you know, and, and from a political standpoint, it's great for the economy when it's soaring like that because they get reelected very easily. But eventually that that you know that runs its course. And we're at that point now. And some really smart people are saying, we're just at the tipping point here. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, the next six to nine months may be maybe much more difficult than where we're at right now. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, again, that's why I'm tooting my own horn because uh, I think that that water it's kind of like when remember when you're not old enough, but I remember when ATT was a monopoly. And and then it got broken up. And the amount of wealth that was generated from breaking up AT&T was sure. far beyond the original value of AT&T, mm-hmm. right? I think that's what's going to happen in water. The, the, the pent-up value of all these systems that have been primarily governmental, as they, come, as they become commercialized, then we're going to see more and more value created. Now, I want to make something very clear. A lot of people think that I'm saying the freshwater itself should be you know, privatized and so forth. I actually don't think so at all. I think it's a big problem. We saw that happen in England. Great Britain went ahead and privatized all its reservoirs. Guess what? They got no more reservoirs. They just got they got that short-term profit and incentive. And you, I believe that fresh water needs to be in the hands of government because um, private interests will tend to skimp. And so what I'm in favor of is, is taking the load off of the the amount of work that the water districts have to do is so intense and it's being caused by corporate entities. Get those corporations off of the water districts, start treating the residential users. In Ireland, they don't charge a dime for fresh water. We could, we could actually have that in this country if we took the corporate users off the grid and had them do their thing. And then the cities would only have to worry about residential needs for which they're well equipped. So that's my little political thing. That's a brilliant plan. I'm excited to see um, you know, how you guys progress over time. Riggs, I really appreciate you taking the time coming on today, kind of enlighten us about this topic. Like I said, it was very fascinating when I saw it because I know this is an issue. And yes, it may not be on the front burner for most people, but I think enlightening them to this issue, perhaps more awareness is going to you know, push the uh, needle forward in the public square, which needs to happen. Well, thank you, Dr. J. And, and I, I really look forward. Your, your audience is obviously enlightened in, about health issues, and we'd love to have them join, join the Origin Clear family. Thank you so much. Triple P Nation, that's our show today. Appreciate you guys joining us as always. Remember, you be you, just be the best you, and you will always empower your dreams, ignite your passion, and accelerate your prosperity. Have a great week, guys. Talk to you soon. That was a really great uh, interview because uh, Dr. J asked all the right questions. We got into a lot of the political issues, and um, we kind of really got, got a chance to say a lot of good things. By the way, this is an excerpt. They're much longer. Uh, I try not to completely dominate these these uh, 
these briefings with the podcast, but this was some good stuff, I thought. Okay, so we have come to that time of night uh, when it is almost the top of the hour, and therefore we are going to get into the freewheeling discussion. There. Hello? I put it up on screen. Hi there. Um, I, I, so, I, great interview. Um, clearly, he did his homework. You know, when I speak, I speak to investors all day, and you can tell they're engaged by the questions they ask, right? Sure. Um, so these were just like super smart questions. Um, I a uh, couple of things when he talked about, and this kind of gets into Barb's uh, question as well. And he talked about, uh, I, I like what you said about um, the clean water, the, the distribution of clean water to the public through their homes will be handled by the municipality, by government, taking the load off. Um, so, so the reason we have all of these chemicals, the reason we have the PFAs and all that stuff is because the upstream, it's all, the, it's all feeding to one centralized location and it's not a one size fits all prospect. Now, as this was, these things were built where there was one type of effluent, right? Human waste. It was household waste, right? And that was easy to handle. And now with, with businesses, you know, dumping their water, it, it's kind of mucked up the water or mucked up the works, if you will. Um, what I don't know that, um, and I, you probably got into the um, economics of it with doctor during the thing is that Right now, a guy who's dumping 5 million gallons of really nasty water, industrial waste water uh, to the main facility sink is paying the same per gallon price as me and Barb, right? So I'm trying to answer Barb's question with our free willing discussion. I'm, I'm trying to keep a couple plates spinning here. Um, so we're paying the same rate. And the further you are from where it's resold, the more you pay. So poorer people actually pay more for clean water than people closer to the action because it goes through resellers, right? So um, clean water should be free. The only way that can happen, however, charge the people who dirty the water to clean the water. Then what you can do is, it, first of all, because it's now, in, it's, not a longer, it's no longer a one size fits all idea anymore, Barb. Um, this specific device on this specific location at this specific business is catered to deal with that specific type of effluent. So the water that comes out of there is a better quality. OK, and it, because he's paying it there and because he's paying a, a operational expense that actually reduces the cost to run his business, he's thrilled. Right. Because there is a load right now, a financial load on these guys to offload water. Now, what happens is the downstream effect is that water gets better. OK, and it, there's a there's a point where if this is scaled enough, this can be delivered the, to the end user, the finished product, which is really good, high quality drinking water removed of all those chemicals from various different sources with their own specific system that's suitable for that. The downstream effect is it gets to us as consumers, and we're only using 11%, but it gets to us consumers cheap, maybe even free. So I hope that addressed some of your, uh, some of your questions, and I, and I hope it um, engaged the audience in our free willing discussion. I think the doctor covered that, but I liked, I liked his entrepreneurial um, kind of quasi-spiritual uh, view of it. I really did enjoy that. Of course, that, you know, life is integrated that way. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the coming schedule. Now, when I did not play tonight because I ran out of time, there was a big meeting of all the ambassadors of the Philanthro Investor Network, mm -hmm. which are in Latin America and elsewhere. 
and Latin or well, South and North America. And it was really good. And I'm going to play that next week, but here's what's more important. We got something very exciting coming that we'll be announcing early in the week, which I think is going to be uh, really thrilling in terms of the direction we're taking. I'm trying to be as general as possible. Uh, That's but- pretty general. I think you're safe. Um, <laughs> I'm the only one who actually knows what you're talking about right now. And it's only because I know what you're talking about. That's good. Exactly. But it's, this is, uh, some might call it a game changer. And then the week after, of course, is the week of our quarterly filing, which is due on the 14th, uh, 15th Tuesday. I think we have a three-day grace, but I, I don't know if we'll have to take it. Um, so by Thursday, I should be able to, on the 17th, I should be able to discuss the results, which I believe are going to be, again, really great. And remember that the annual report doesn't occur until all the way in uh, the spring of next year. So we... Um, so this will be the last major report on our performance for the year. Cool. So I encourage you all to come back next. As I say, next week, it's going to be a thriller, the thriller and Manila. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be a thriller and a killer when I meet the gorilla in Manila. Boom. Manila. Nice 1972, work. 1972, the thriller in Manila. Joe you, weren't born. you weren't even born, dude. I was, I was, I was, I was. Quite young, but my dad was a boxing fan. Listen, I grew up on it. I grew up on Muhammad Ali. I watched Muhammad Ali fights. You know, we uh, Howard Cosell's Wide World of Sports. You know, that's when we watched. So that's when they fight. They, that's when you didn't have to pay to watch a fight. You that's just right. Had to stay up late on. You had to stay up late on a Saturday. That's all. Well, so it's going to be a thriller. And then the week after, as I say, it's going to be the uh, quarterly report. So thank you all for joining us. Eugene Tully says, do a beer commercial, replace Snoop Dogg. Thank you very much. You guys are all great. Um, Barb, I don't know quite pre- how to respond to that. So, <laughs> no, <laughs> just, <laughs> just don't. Right. Right. And uh, anyway, so there's all kinds of great um, uh, input on the comments, which I unfortunately don't have time to handle. But Barb Retson, um, thank you for all your input. It's been really interesting. Robert Baxter, it's a pleasure. Uh, of course, Keith Rutten is always very encouraging. Charlie Devanzo gave us the like that. So we've made the great happy campers. So stay tuned. It's going to be exciting, more exciting times ahead. I love what we're doing. Paul Fetcher says, yeah. And with that, I bid you adieu. It's nine o'clock. We have to go. We turn into pumpkins. Thank you all. Stay cool. Bye.